Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, let's spend some time with one of the great minds of our generation. Gar Alperwitz is an American historian and political economist. He served as a fellow at King's College, Cambridge. He was a founding fellow of the Harvard Institute of Politics, a founding fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, guest scholar at the Brookings Institution, the Lionel R. Bauman Professor of Political Economy at the University of Maryland. He also served as legislative director in the U.S. House of Representatives in the U.S. Senate and as a, as a special assistant to the U.S. Department of State. And he is a distinguished lecturer now with the American Historical Society and co-founded the Democracy Collaborative and co-chairs its Next System Project, which is extraordinary stuff, involved in the Pentagon Papers, the anti-war movement, right up to today. Professor Alperwitz, it's been a while since you and I did that song and dance together, uh, a talk together in uh, D.C. It seems like it's been six or eight years. It's great to have you back with us and reconnect. We're both featured speakers at Bioneers here. Great to have you back with us. Tell us about your thinking on this next political economic system. Well, it's good to be in touch again, Tom. Thanks for having me on. What we've been looking at is, um, in some ways, there's one level of political discussion, which is obviously in all over the airwaves, who gets elected president, who gets elected to Congress, very important in the short term and the near term. But one of the deep questions is the long, long trends of income distribution, climate change, wealth change, which by and large have not changed for over 30 years in the long directions with the top 400 people have more income than the bottom 50%, 40%, depending upon where you draw the line, where the distribution of wealth is extremely concentrated and doesn't change much with the political process. As you noted, I'd run a House and Senate staffs uh, and also at high level of planning in the State Department. And the real question is, do you get trend change? Or do the trends keep stable and not increasing, in fact, decreasing in some areas? Well, that's a systemic problem. Something is really wrong at the heart of the system. And uh, the work we've been doing here is to examine that without getting totally away from rhetoric. But what's going on with the big institutions? And one of those I would say, and I'll just put this in and we can then take it off from there. 
all over the Western world, progressive politics has depended overwhelmingly on having a strong labor union part of the progressive politics. In some countries, in Sweden, for instance, which many people think was the most advanced system called the welfare state, up to 80 or 85 percent of the labor force was unionized, and that gave great power to a progressive political party. In the United States, it never got over 34 percent, and that was way back in the 1930s. We are now down to 6 percent of the labor force organized in unions, and the importance of that is not only economic, but it is a very, very weakening of the traditional sources of power for progressive politics. That system, the American system and all over the world, the welfare state systems, which depended upon corporations uh, and obviously modern capitalism, but also the countervailing power, not only economically, but politically, that was given by labor unions, that's just about over. So we're entering uh, really what some kind of different systemic change is about to be emerging as we go into the new next decades. And it's not going to be like the, the past decades. We can talk about some of the signs on the ground, but that's the context into which we really have to face some real big changes that are going on and I think are going to be dominating the next 20 years of American politics. Yeah, it seems like, uh, at the very least, the wealth inequalities could be addressed by simply rolling back the Trump, Bush, and Reagan tax cuts and going back to tax levels that worked so well from 1940 to 1980, you know, between uh, 90 and 74 percent on the very top end. We had people getting rich, but they weren't, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg rich. But they were doing just fine, thank you very much. I mean, they could still buy a yacht and five houses. And we had a strong social safety net. We built the country. Eisenhower built the interstate highway system with a 91% top income tax rate, which he championed and which he defended on multiple occasions. It's just like, you know, we've been in this 40-year Reaganomics experiment, and it looks to me like it's just a disaster for us. And then if we had that money from those taxes, we could implement the Green New Deal and rebuild America the way Eisenhower did in 1954. Um, I forget the third point you made. I'm sorry, I should have made a note. But uh, those are at least two of them that would be addressed by one single policy. Or am I being too Pollyannish or simplistic here? Well, that, that's the era I worked in the House and the Senate and in the policy planning area of the State Department. And indeed, there was a, that was possible. And the formula that allowed those things to happen, and I certainly support what you just said, Tom, but that was kind of a progressive politics. But if you look at the, there's a lot of scholarly work on this now, the underpinnings of that politics, the institutional underpinnings of that politics in every country, Western country of the world, was a strong labor union base that gave power to the progressive side of the political spectrum. In Sweden, that was 85% of the labor force was organized in unions, and they made for a very strong progressive social democratic party in Great Britain. So we're, we're lacking that here, as you so eloquently laid out. On the other hand, we're seeing enormous grassroots activism in the United States right now, largely from communities that have been at least politically marginalized in the past, communities of color, young people, people on Social Security, people with college debt, things like that. Many of them, you know, typically never even voted. Now they're out in the streets. Can they make up for the death of the labor unions in the or from Reagan killing the Reagan the labor unions in the United States with that on the ground activism and electing you know good progressives like Elizabeth Warren Bernie Sanders those kind of folks 
Well, I think that's a really good question, Tom, and I'm glad you raised it. Indeed, that's the world I come out of. The answer is yes, but not enough. Wherever we Mm -hmm. can get that kind of activism, it's very important. But the other piece of it, and this is what's interesting about what's happening on the ground, just, just kind of under the radar, is unions were an institution that worked hand in hand with the kind of activism you're talking about, and indeed helped finance it and gave power to it and lobbied in Washington, and they had ongoing institutional muscle. That world is just about over, and most people don't realize it. The question of building a a real progressive movement of the kind that uh, we're talking about and we both hope for, I think is going to rest on what's happening just under the radar where new kinds of community economic institutions have in fact been developing all over the country. It's kind of like if you look back at the 1920s before the Great Depression and before the New Deal, almost everything that became the New Deal was developing on the ground around in the states and localities and then kind of became nationalized under Roosevelt. And what we're seeing Hmm. around the country are lots and lots of really interesting experiments that I think are in the necessary condition and likely to lay the groundwork for the next transformative move in American politics. That's long-term, decade-by-decade building, but I can give you some examples of really interesting things that are going on that I think are already laying foundations here and in countries like Great Britain and in other countries that the the people who've been studying it closely on the ground, the the national press doesn't pick it up, but there's a lot of research of what's really happening and laying groundwork for the the next big new deal, if you like. You have referenced state and local laboratories of democracy. This this is a a phrase that in some ways goes back to the founding of the country, or at least the sentiment does. Can you expand on that? The term was most widely used in the late 1920s and the 1930s, where things like uh, what became the welfare programs in, in the welfare state and Social Security, for instance, were experimented with in states like California, particularly California, and also Oregon, and then became the kind of models upon which new legislation at the national level were developed. So that's the most uh, most salient feature. Public banks, if you look around the country now, are an interesting model that's developing in different parts of the country. Uh, the most advanced one is in uh, North Dakota, which is a state-owned bank which helps finance local community cooperatives and worker-owned companies and farmers. Uh, but it's a public bank, and it's conventional developing a That's been there model. for 100 now, years. Look- Why have no other states picked one up? Well, it's very interesting that that model hasn't been picked up, but it certainly is now. Many, many states have looked at it. I think what happened was the the New Deal, and I think this is a good example of what I've, um, the the dynamics of the politics. There was a strong enough labor movement during the New Deal to give undergirding power to a progressive politics of the kind we know, which is a major, major corporate capitalist country like our own or like most of the Western Europeans, but counterbalanced, or the term they use is countervailed, by a progressive politics at the heart of which was labor union political power. So you didn't need all these other institutions like public banks and other things happening, and I can tell you about lots else on the ground, because you had a different kind of design of the system, the big corporations, but balanced politically as well as economically, in part, by labor union power. That's over. That game is over. The labor union's just about gone in this country. So we're now seeing the development in many, many parts of the country of new institutions that begin to build a different power base for a new kind of politics of a more progressive kind to counterbalance the weight of uh, corporate uh, politics. 
Uh, and I think that's are you, where are you talking about groups in. like Indivisible or or like the Democracy Collaborative, or are you, or, or is there something I'm I'm missing? Yeah, the, those are those are some those are advocacy groups or research groups like our own at the, the Democracy Collaborative. Let me give you an example, uh, and I'll give you one in England and one here. But in the United States, in Cleveland, there is uh, this was a, there's a group of community worker owned companies, very large scale that are in a kind of a neighborhood of about 40,000, very low income, mostly black. There is a community-wide, community-owned corporation, jointly owned with workers in large scale. There's a laundry, there's a very high-tech environmental greenhouse, businesses that does environmental electronic work and electrical work, solar installations, etc., so it's a jointly nonprofit community-wide corporation benefiting the whole community, 40,000 neighborhood, but jointly with the worker-owned companies. That's a new institutional base. That is that is marvelous. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Gar, you said you had some examples where these uh, laboratories of democracy, as it were, communities, states, uh, neighborhoods, uh, were creating some of the new institutions that could bring us forward and, and help rebuild our nation from the, the neoliberal damage of the last 40 years or so. My phrase, not yours. Tell us about those. Well, I think the, the, the essence of them is some sort of democratization of wealth, if you like, of ownership. And I was mentioning some of these uh, co-ops would be the thing that most people know about, or credit unions or democratic banks, uh, co-ops or democratic companies. But we're seeing very interesting complexes of them. I mentioned the one in Cleveland, which is worker-owned companies, which are jointly owned with a nonprofit corporation uh, covering about 40,000 people in a, in a poor neighborhood there. 
We've worked closely with people in Preston, England, where they're doing it in a much larger community, a community-wide nonprofit corporation or a municipality, setting up a community bank, setting up community-owned jobs and joint ventures with cooperatives. So all of a sudden you begin changing the day-to-day complex of the structure of work looks like and who owns it. You know, the concentration of wealth in the United States is extraordinary. The top four or five people who are very wealthy has owned more wealth than the bottom 40 or 50 percent, depending on how you do the calculations. So changing who owns wealth is a big part of this. Another piece of it is, uh, for environmentalists, it's very important, also land trusts, which begin to take some of the land into under community or nonprofit control, and there are lots of that going on. Lots of community bank development, public banks. The oldest one is in North Dakota. It's about 100 years old, conservative state. Uh, you might call it a socialist bank, but it's a very conservative state and very popular amongst the business people there. We're seeing a lot of experimentation with public banks. All of this is like the 1920s, as I said, and where all the experiments that were taking place in the 1920s were later expanded to become the politics of the New Deal in much larger form. And I think we're in that kind of a period now in terms of experimentation. Uh, it's also important to remember, uh, if you look at what the at the national level, and most people haven't noticed this, we are doing things that are radical in the financial world. Under the current Federal Reserve Board, we have put trillions of dollars to the system by the Federal Reserve Board, which is most people don't understand the way money manufacture works, but it's like a wartime. All of a sudden, when you want to do it, the institutions can create financial credit, which is what's happening right now, big time, and it happened in World War II, big time, but this is under the Trump era. So using the power of the Federal Reserve Board, which is a national bank, to actually finance some of these new experiments is, is a big part of the next stage. So there's a lot going on. I can give you one or two more examples, then we can take it off from there. People tend to forget just uh, just 10 years ago, we nationalized General Motors, Chrysler Corporation, some of the big banks during the Great Recession. So crisis moments, all of a sudden, some of the big ones begin to change. And then they were sold back in part to the workers and part to the companies. But we may see developments like in the 1930s, the, one of the big corporations that became public was the Tennessee Valley Authority, which still exists, a very, very large seven-state kind of a enterprise, which is both generates electricity but has ecological implications. It's a quasi-public entity. So I think we're in a period now where we're laying groundwork, a lot of experimentation just under the radar, which the press doesn't cover, which I think is beginning to filter itself into politics at the local level. And I, I think we're going to see very exciting period building on all of this grassroots experimentation that's going on, as I say, just below the radar of, of most public attention. You know, Reagan declared war on unions two years after Maggie Thatcher's essentially first major act of office was to take on the most powerful union in England, the coal miners, and broke their backs. And then Reagan did the same thing with, uh, with PATCO. Are the U.K. and the United States the only two countries in the Western world that, that have diminished the power of labor radically? Well, it's been, it's been declined radically. I mean, the Brits still are about 28% of the labor force. We're only at 6% in the private sector. So we're way, way down at the but bottom. But Germany is like 80 90%. I think it's not quite that high, but it is very high. Sweden yeah. is still up in that range. The point, which is critical, is that labor not just... Most people think about labor unions in, you know, bargaining for wages and hours and working conditions. Yes, that's very important. 
But the other part of it is they typically finance and give muscle and manpower and woman power to politics for the progressive side of the spectrum. And that's a mm. big deal. It's been very well studied by political scientists. When you have small labor unions, you have weak progressive politics, unless you build new institutions, which is what we're talking about. Gar Alperovitz on the line with us. Gar, back in the day, uh, you were U.S. Steel was moving their factory out of, as I recall, Pittsburgh, and you were involved in trying to Youngstown. That's right. Thank you. Um, Can you tell us about that experience and what you learned from it? Youngstown Sheet and Tube was the name of the company when they shut down, and about five thousand workers lost their job on one terrible day in September 1976. I think it was. And all of a sudden, the, the community of Youngstown realized the biggest base of their, their uh, enterprise was gone. So the community got together, uh, both the workers and the city council and the, the church leadership, and they, they wanted to do something to save jobs, to save lives, save the community. And they actually they called me, and I was working on economic things in, in, in Washington, and they sort of looked at some of the experiments we've been involved with. And jointly, we developed a plan for worker and community ownership of a giant steel mill and to put it back and modernize it and put it back up and running. And the Carter administration at that time uh, financed the big, big, very professional studies of how to do it. But the most important part was the political organizing that got the whole state of Ohio and the National Churchill's Council of Churches, the Republican governor of Ohio, a uh, big, big backing for this plan to put the, put the company back on. And around the, con- the country, uh, in many parts of the country, the idea of community worker ownership was uh, very, very widely popularized by this, this effort. Uh, what happened was the Carter administration at the last moment decided not to go forward. We think that, that we now know that some of the big steel companies had gotten to them and even some of the hierarchy at that time of the labor, steel labor unions, they've changed radically now. The, mo- the modern guys are very different, very progressive, uh, got to them and said they didn't want to do this. So the, the actual plan, which was done by the leading technology guys in the steel industry, for a community worker-owned company didn't happen. But what did happen, and this is the story to think about, throughout the state of Ohio, that idea has spread. So you find worker cooperatives everywhere in Ohio. In Cleveland, there's a whole complex in the Cleveland, one of very poor neighborhoods. It's a community-wide corporation with joint ventures with worker-owned companies and with the hospitals and universities buying from this in the Cleveland area that's and many many parts of the country and in Great Britain have picked up on the model that spun out of this early pro- progress in Youngstown and the the model and the moral of the story is a lot of the experimentation going on now around the country we, we've begun to talk about that cooperatives public banks new land ownership municipal and neighborhood ownership land trusts regional efforts these experiments just in the 1920s these experiments laid the groundwork for what became nationally the new deal we think there's going to be we're going to see a lot more and more building on the experiments now happening of the kind that are even more interesting in communities around the country and public banks and worker-owned companies, community-owned companies that are just popping up beneath the surface uh, and I think are, are laying groundwork for something very exciting. The other, the other thing that's really happening, that just to open the door on, on this, in two or three of the really giant states, California is now, I think, the fifth largest economy in the world. 
you're seeing even more experimentation in almost nation-state scale. Um, the United States is a gigantic continent, and it's very hard to run a participatory democracy in a continent 3,000 miles coast-to-coast coast diagonally. But some of the states, like California, are really experimenting with public banks, with ownership, with new environmental efforts, new politics. And we may certainly see New York doing the same thing. And Texas is just about to turn as the Hispanic community becomes a majority of the politics with the majority minority politics in Texas. We're going to see some of these big states, I think, taking on the kind of things that are almost as big. And, or You can drop Germany into Montana, these little, little, little countries in Europe. I think we're going to see some of our big regional-sized states taking up where the federal government is not able to act, and I think that's going to be very positive for the future. So even though there's some real difficulties, the national level, I think we're building from the ground up and in some of the key states, uh, lots and lots of interesting and exciting experimentation for the future. Are you seeing new models beyond the things that you've talked about that are emerging? And to that point, by the way, and to the point of all of this, it seems like whenever there is uh, anything going on, for example, here in Oregon a couple of years ago, the Democrats in the legislature who controlled the legislature proposed a cap and trade for carbon emissions. You know, a nice step. It's, it's an old George Herbert Walker Bush thing. It's how he did away with sulfur dioxide acid rain was with a cap and trade program. It used to be a Republican idea. Democrats proposed that here. And what happened? We had local right-wing talk show hosts going hysterical, uh, supporting the Republicans. And, and, of course, a lot of right-wing radio around the country is subsidized or supported by uh, the Koch Network, by the Heritage Foundation. Ken Vogel did some great in-depth reporting on this. You know, $9 million the Heritage Foundation gave to Rush Limbaugh, millions they gave to Hannity. There's this huge right-wing echo chamber of 1,500 radio stations, um, you know, just saturating the country and the spittle of Limbaugh and these guys every day. Um, and then on top of that, you've got Fox News and you've got all these right-wing publications. And now they're, they're basically taking over the Internet by creating dozens and dozens and dozens of organizations and, and phony news groups that, uh, that show up on you know, any kind of Google search. Google search just organized labor. And, and many of the first links that come up are about corruption and evil and all this kind of stuff. But how do we accomplish this in this environment where the billionaires have been given such power? to involve themselves in our politics by the Supreme Court, principally by, those, uh, by the Buckley and Bellotti decisions in 76, 78, and then ratified in 2010 by Citizens United? Well, it's, uh, you know, as a, putting on a historian's hat, the, the way it's always done, of course, you and I talked about this a long time ago, Tom, building from the bottom up to build a new power base. But also, in a, in, I sort of think about it this way, and this term is caught on in some discussions. If you think of the country not in the way we usually do, but think of it as a checkerboard. There are certain states, uh, California being one, uh, maybe Oregon now, uh, New York State, uh, my own state of Wisconsin, where I'm from originally, uh, several other states where you could see really interesting experimentation building up a different kind of institutional, like these public banks and community ownership and worker ownership, municipalizing cable systems, lots of experimentation all over the country on the checkerboard. Now, if you think of it as building piece by piece across the checkerboard rather than are we a majority now, you get one picture. But if you think of this building slowly as it did in the 1920s and the 1930s and in the period before the World War I, that's the way you get to the place where you can have enough national power to make things happen. 
And that's the exciting thing about what's happening just under the surface with uh, community land ownership. Land trusts are very common. Public utilities are growing. Community worker-owned companies are growing. Public banks are growing. New environmental programs on the checkerboard part of the country. So I'm, a, as I see it as a historian, is an extremely fertile and creative period, even though at the national level, the power relationships you're talking about and the very conservative and, uh, issues are still at the dominant in some parts of the country, there's, some, there's something brewing, as they say, uh, that is not just political. It's building new institutions to replace, in some ways, what the labor unions once did for progressive politics uh, in America and virtually all the Western countries. So that process of slowly reconstructing new forms of democratic ownership at the bottom up uh, is a very fertile and exciting process. If, you, if you're willing to play the long game, which I think is the only game we can play right now, do whatever can be done at one level, at the national level, state level, but also really rebuilding not only movement politics, but these new exciting institutions of community banks, worker banks, land trusts, worker community ownership, state ownership, a whole set of structures that countervail against the other giant corporate structures is the slow process of rebuilding a very, very different foundations infrastructure for what we call the next system, which is well beyond either capitalism or socialism, very decentralized, very American, but has much more public and democratic ownership aspects. How does the average person tap into this? How do, how do people join this movement, as it were? The Democracy Collaborative, which is our institution, we have lots and lots of publications. My co-chair on the Next System Project, Gus Beth, has just published a book called New Systems, and it's a compilation mm-hmm. of this, which is available right now on the web. Cool. I will check it out. One of the people involved in the Vietnam summer activist campaign back in the 70s, the late 60s and early 70s, I was very active in the anti-war movement with SDS in East Lansing, Michigan. Tell me about what you were doing back then, what lessons you learned from that, and how they apply to today, either in the context of war, because we're still having wars, or you know, unnecessary ones, or in the context of activism or both. I'm originally from Wisconsin, Racine, Wisconsin, a small industrial town in just south of Milwaukee. I'm just a little bit older probably than you, but a year or two, maybe three. <laughs> and in the late 1950s, that was the era of Joseph McCarthy, and nothing moved politically. As they used to say, they shot everything that, anything that moved, they shot. So you didn't believe anything was possible, particularly in Wisconsin with Joe McCarthy around. And then, of course, what happened was the 1960s exploded out of that environment. So I, mm. I am not a, a utopian optimist, but I do think of th- things in terms of history as a historian. And I think we are in a period of laying groundwork with all the experiments you and I have just been talking about happening around the country. And experiments are about building institutions, not just activism for politics, but building new institutions like public banks and community worker-owned companies and land trusts, community land ownership and municipal efforts, all this kind of thing that's happening all over the country. I see that as laying the groundwork for the next big explosive push, along with the politics that's building up. It's a very fertile period, even though it's been dark in the last four years of the Trump period, from my point of view. 
I think we're going to begin seeing the results of this in movement building that, that not only deals with race issues and environmental issues in general, but actually has institutions that people are talking about. So, so when the next big crisis happened, like the Great Depression, General Motors was nationalized. So was Chrysler. So were the big banks. What are we going to do when the next big crisis happens? Can we do something like the public banks of this very conservative state of North Dakota? Can we begin having much better public control of the large financial institutions? Can we begin to get joint community worker ownership as we had in the Youngstown steel mill proposals of some of the big companies? Looking to the future as a 30-year hike forward, uh, I see the possibilities of really building on all the, all the experimentation that's going on around the country, just under the under the kind of under the hood, if you say it. And, and that way, that, that that viewing it as a historian, I think this is a very very exciting period as we're laying groundwork for the the, the next big push, and it's and it's a lot a lot going on that people can build on. And say if you want to do this stuff. Call six or seven friends together, get some pizza and some, some beer or whatever you like to drink. Start reading about what's really happening at the grassroots level. And you can do it in your local community and begin building some of those that are happening in many, many other communities around the country that are laying the groundwork for big change. You were um, involved with Daniel Ellsberg, who's just a brilliant guy. In fact, he wrote the uh, cover blurb for my new book on oligarchy, which will be out in a couple of months and provided me with some great feedback when I was writing the book. You were involved with him with the Pentagon Papers. You wrote Atomic Diplomacy. I'm curious, looking back on that era and the possibility that Nixon was going to go totally madman nuclear or something like that over Vietnam, Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty, and he's also abandoned, I believe, two, it might just be one, of the uh, nuclear agreements that we had with Russia, and I think he did one of them unilaterally. Where are we at in regard to all this potential conflict among nations? I'm wondering your thoughts on the Thucydides trap, the possibility that, you know, as as a new economic and political and military power emerges, in this case China, and to some extent Russia, and the old power diminishes, the United States, there's almost always a huge potential for conflict. Your thoughts on that collection? Of well, stuff. I think it's really important. We're talking about building the new society so far and all the experiments and developments. I, the other part of the work I've done, as you probably know, I've written a couple of books on nuclear weapons and the bombing of Hiroshima. They have not gone away. The dangers of a nuclear war or by mistake, dangers of the nuclear holocaust are still with us and indeed growing as other powers begin to try to get control of these weapons. So I think that they have to go hand in hand, the rebuilding of the new society and the building on the experiments. But also, it really is time for a new non-arms control disarmament push. Nuclear war doesn't work for anybody. Chinese or the North Koreans don't get very much out of nuclear war except to destroy society. But we haven't seen an initiative to really do this. The, the last initiative was the, uh, the Iranian control of nuclear development. We haven't seen a major initiative for arms control or arms reduction for a long time. When I worked in the House and Senate as policy development, we began we set up what was called the Arms Control Disarmament Agency, and we began pushing for the attempts at real disarmament and arms control. We've been damn lucky on nuclear weapons so far. They haven't been exchanged in, in anger since 
Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But that's a long time ago, and we've been very lucky. So I think the other side, and we haven't talked about it, is beginning to rebuild a movement that says not only climate change is environmentally necessary, but really beginning to build a strong movement that says it's time to get control of these weapons. And I think it's in everybody's interest worldwide to make sure these things don't go off because they are now so destructive. So it's both and. Rebuild a new society at the same time we try to get control of these nuclear weapons uh, somehow through global compromises and global arms reduction. Uh, I'm glad you raised the question, Tom. At the same time, though, Donald Trump is, and I believe this is an initiative that started under Bush and has, you know, continued, but Trump really fed it up, the, the development of so-called battlefield nukes strategic battlefield nukes. Where is that at, and, and, and does that present an entirely different kind of threat to the, uh, you know, 300 megaton bombs that could take out New York City? This would be one that would take out, you know, 20 square blocks, but leave it radioactive for a thousand years? Not only radioactive for a thousand years, but very likely to move up the escalation ladder towards exchange of the next higher size and up, 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 and the dangers are really great. You don't want to mess with these things because they're so dangerous to get on the, on the ladder climbing up. We have not seen an American president really take this on for a long time, arms control, disarmament, and it's in everybody's interest. to be, And one of the reasons is we haven't, we've lost the kind of movements that used to be pushing for that. So I think we've been talking about building the new society from the ground up. The other piece of this is we've been damn lucky on nuclear weapons since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the other side of this is rebuilding a kind of movement to say it's, it's time to get control of this stuff in a very serious way. So, uh, you know, people are activists. And the way to do it is you call half a dozen friends together, you start reading about it, and you start something locally. And by gosh, like the women's movement showed us, that's how you build big movements. They always start locally in somebody's living room reading and talking and organizing. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I think it's necessary, but I'm also, as a historian, quite hopeful about the processes of community organizing that start at the bottom and build up and all of a sudden they find lots of other people agree with them. And isn't that the way it's always happened, whether it was abolition or whether it was women's suffrage or whether it was, uh, you know, gay rights or, or I mean, uh, civil rights, fill in the blanks. It always started at the local level, didn't it? Not that Every exactly right. It's not only the local level, but Look in the mirror tomorrow. I'm talking to the listeners and, and to ourselves. Look in the mirror tomorrow morning and say, am I willing to do something myself personally? And the way to do it is to call half a dozen of friends together and you know, get some pizza and some beer or whatever you'd like to drink and then start talking about what could we do locally. And you'd be surprised. That's how, the, how they all start. They're, you know, John Lewis just passed away this past year. If you look at his background and how he started out, he was, work, he was kind of a farmer, farm kid. And all of a sudden you find John Lewis gets involved and, and he begins to build and find that you can really do things if you bring some friends together and begin getting active. That, that's how it always yeah. works. There you go. Make good trouble. Gar Alpervitz. Hey, Gar, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you today. Thank you. It's great talking to you, Tom. Thanks very much. Gar and I both speaking for uh, Bioneers.org and Gar's Twitter handle is Gar Alpervitz. It's G-A-R-A-L-P-E-R-O-V-I-T-Z. So be sure to check that out and say hi to him and thank you and all that kind of stuff. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The place where despair is not an option.
Kenny Asabel is on the line with us. He's a journalist, filmmaker, author of four books, including his latest, Dreaming the Future. But most pertinent to this conversation, he's the CEO and the founder of Bioneers. The website, of course, Bioneers.org. Kenny, welcome back to the program. It's been quite a while. Can you just give us a quick recap for people who are unfamiliar with Bioneers, who you guys are, what you're all about, and why people like me are coming to speak at your conference? Nice to be with you. Yeah, my wife and I, Nina Simon, founded Bioneers in 1990. Really, the focus has always been on solutions. You know, to anybody that had been paying attention, it was clear we were heading straight off a cliff, both environmentally and civilizationally. And so our focus has always been on solutions with a perspective of, you know, a politics around democracy, inclusion, justice, you know, all those kinds of values. And over the years, it just became a thing. We didn't really have a plan when we started or anything, but Bioneers has become kind of a trellis on which many leaders and movements have grown and grown together over the years. And, um, you know, our, our central premise is that it's all connected all these different issues that appear to be separate are actually one issue at the end of the day. This is our 31st year, and the first year we're doing an online conference, obviously, because of COVID, but for 30 years we've been gathering in Northern California each year with about 4,000 people. So It's a great conference, and you get great speakers, and I'm, you know, I'm always happy to support your work and publicize it because you're, just, you know, you're doing God's work. I'm talking with Kenny Osabel, he's co-founder of Bioneers. We've got a conference this weekend and next. You can find all the information at Bioneers.org. Kenny, just a quick note on who the speakers are going to be or some of the topics. Yeah, well, we're very diverse, as always, looking at different issues. Obviously, you're going to speak, which we're super excited about. I know you're going to talk about democracy as the natural state of the natural world, which is wonderful. And then you and I and a couple of other people are going to do a panel about monopoly versus democracy, which has actually been a central struggle since the founding of this republic and has reached proportions that are more like pharaohic Egypt than you know even the Gilded Age anymore. People don't quite understand how incredibly destructive that is. And we're going to have Paul Stamets, who's now famous. Paul first spoke at Bioneers in 1996, when nobody would ever heard of him, with this outrageous premise that mushrooms can save the world. And of course, Paul turned out to be right. And he's kind of a genius who has found all kinds of amazing applications from environmental remediation to human health to the mystery of consciousness itself, which is what he's going to talk about this year, psilocybin and um, psychedelic properties, consciousness expanding properties. Which we just legalized in Oregon, by the way. Yes, yes. That was very enlightened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. finally. Chloe Maxman, who first spoke at Bioneers in 2014 when she was doing Divest Harvard as a student at Harvard, and she now just got elected to the Maine State Senate, where she actually displaced the Republican um, leader of the Senate, the incumbent, in a red district that also voted for Susan Collins, and Chloe is an exceptional young, now public servant, who introduced the Green New Deal in Maine last year that's keyed very much to the particulars of Maine with enormous support for it. Very cool. And Bakari Kitwana, whom I met through our mutual friend David Orr, who just did the Democracy Unchained anthology book that Bakari co-edited. And Bakari is a leading, he's a polymath like yourself and a public intellectual activist, uh, author, and it's really going to look at what is the future of black America and what does that mean for American democracy. 
And just a couple of other highlights, just to give you a sense of the diversity. I think you know Tom Lindsay and Mari Margill. They've been part of Bioneers since about 2006, but it was where I first really learned about the rights of nature governance work. When yep. Tom was just, yep. that was yeah. just starting Thomas to been percolate. On this, Thomas has been on this program many times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so Tom and Mari are going to give kind of the state of the state of nature in relation to rights of nature governance around the world, because it's actually mm-hmm. even much bigger other places in the world than it is here yet. And pioneers ourselves are doing a project that Tom and Mari have been involved with on the ground. We have an indigeneity program with two Native women who lead that program, and we've actually been offering trainings and workshops around rights of nature governance in Indian country here in the U.S., We're based in the Southwest. I'm talking to you from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and there are many, many tribes ready to move on this. Mm -hmm. That would be a game changer because what happens on Indian lands has upstream and downstream effects and can actually affect what surrounding communities can and can't do in relation to the destruction of nature. So it's very, very powerful stuff. John Powell, who's a law professor at UC Berkeley who founded the Othering and Belonging Institute, John's a real bodhisattva, I would say, one of the very small number of people I know that I'd ever say that about. And his work is really about bridging versus breaking. You know, do we build bridges or do we build walls? And how do we build a world in a society where everybody belongs? And John is just extraordinary. And the list goes on. Leah Penniman, who's an African-American farmer in Massachusetts, who is leading the BIPOC farming movement and is just an exceptional person. And another young African-American woman scientist, Ayanna Johnson, who with our friend Bren Smith, who developed 3D ocean farming, has pushed the Blue New Deal. (laughs) And we're going to actually have a very cool panel that's about diverse New Deals. There's the Green New Deal, there's the Blue New Deal for the oceans, and then there's uh, the Red New Deal for Indian country. So we're going to look at what all those look like together. Kenny Ozabel, the uh, co-founder of Bioneers, Bioneers.org. It's a great organization. It's why I show up periodically to speak and, you know, for absolutely free. I'm totally in supporting you guys. Kenny Ozabel. Thank you, Kenny. Hey, we love you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Kenny. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. 
the way car buying should be. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann joins the science revolution for the full episode this week. He's the creator of the hockey stick graphic that Al Gore made famous to describe global warming. His latest book is The New Climate War, and he drops by to answer the question, have humans passed the point of no return in the climate crisis, and is there hope? He also explains why storms are getting worse because of climate change. Plus, what will it mean to return to the Paris Agreement and how will things change with scientists back in charge in the Biden administration? Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, Dr. Mark Plotkin is the co-founder and president of the Amazon Conservation Team, AmazonTeam.org. He's the author of several books including his most recent, The Killers Within, The Deadly Rise of Drug-Resistant Bacteria. He's going to be speaking at Bioneers. His Twitter handle is DocMarkPlotkin, P-L-O-T-K-I-N, or Amazon Team Org. And uh, Dr. Plotkin, welcome to the program. I understand you also have a newer book coming out. Uh, what's the title of that? From Oxford Press. It's called The Amazon, What Everyone Needs to Know. It ranges from ayahuasca to climate change and everything in between. Okay, so here in the, in the West, I woke up this morning coughing. My lungs are still not fully recovered from the uh, week-long experience we had here in Portland where the smoke from the fires, you know, much of our state was on fire, and the smoke was so dense. Uh, one day I actually did my show wearing a KN95 mask because my lungs and my throat were so raw. The water exhaust pipe from our heating system drains the AC condensate out, Actually, that condensate, it was so full of these particles that it burned through the copper pipe and was leaking into the wall. I mean, this is, this is just awful stuff. But how do, when you've got massive forest fires going on and more to come as a result of climate change, and you're trying to engage in conservation, you know, and you're trying to protect or make healthier forests, how do we do that and what can we learn from the people of the Amazon, the people that you are so closely connected to about this? Well, Tom, you've been a champion of climate change, and I think the world is really waking up to this for better or worse, and mostly for worse. And when we see forests burning down in the Amazon, we think, well, we've got our own problems at home because we've got forest fires in California. We've got forest fires in Napa endangering the world's wine supply. But the shamans with whom I work say it's all the same thing. It's all connected. Some people on your show would call this the butterfly effect. What happens there affects us here and vice versa. What lessons can we learn from how indigenous people in the Amazon are dealing with this? Or is it that they are as helpless in the face of this 
climate change induced these climate change induced wildfires as we appear to be work with a group called the Kogis in Colombia, some of the most traditional people in the world. And they've been talking about their glaciers melting for 30 years. Nobody listened. Mm -hmm. But this is the price we pay by not listening. Because these people are closer to the earth, they're better stewards of the earth, and we need to listen to them when they're sounding the alarm. Because the result of that is the fires in Napa, uh, the fires in the boreal forest in the north, the fires in the Amazon. What do we do? Well, we need to be better stewards of our planet, not just our country, not just our state, because we all interconnected. Right. I'm talking more about this on a webinar I'm doing on the Amazon and what it means for us. So you can check mm -hmm. that out on our Facebook page, AmazonTeam.org. And then I'll be talking about this more extensively at the upcoming Bioneers Conference. So I hope people will tune in from that. But the bottom line is we need to be better citizens of our own planet, better citizens of the Arctic, better citizens of the temperate zone where we live better stewards of the of the rainforest as well. And what steps make us, what things that we can do make us better stewards? I would say the first thing is for people to get involved. You know, conservation begins at home, but it's a global situation that's interconnected. So reforestation everywhere is always good. Better protection of endangered species at the current administration, one of their many, many, many stupid moves, as you pointed out, have been trying to gut the protection for these things. Better protection of human rights, because ultimately protecting the environment is about protecting us. That's what we believe at the Amazon conservation team and the conservation world, the rest of the conservation world, and hopefully now the government is waking up to as well. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Mark Plotkin, Doc Mark Plotkin on Twitter, and your uh, website was uh, amazonteam.org. Thank you very much for dropping That's right. by, Doc. Okay, Tom. With Thank you, you very much. And Pleasure. I look forward to your Binaries talk. Strange goings-on in France right now. I don't know if you've caught the news, but there have been hundreds of thousands of people, or it certainly looks that way. We'll, we'll fact-check that in just a second. Out in the streets because the government of France is trying to do something that has been tried by some states in the United States, which is making it illegal for you to use your iPhone or whatever to video record or audio record the police as they are engaging in police brutality, as they're up to no good. This is mind-boggling. So on the line with us is our old buddy Cole Stangler. He's now a Paris-based journalist covering labor and politics, and he writes and produces for the international news network France 24, where Louise and I have seen him on the air several times. It's usually where we get our news on the weekends is France 24. Cole, welcome back to the program. ColeStangler.com, by the way, the website, S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R. Cole, welcome back to the program. Tell us, and, and also Cole Stangler is the Twitter handle. Tell us, how did this start? This bill uh, comes in a context in which, for a lot of political reasons, President of France is concerned about potential competition, threats coming from the right, in particular Marine Le Pen on the far right, but also the mainstream right party, uh, the Republican Party in France. So in a lot of ways, this bill that we've seen emerge uh, is designed to appeal to this, this sort of right-wing uh, right electoral base. Uh, that's one part of it. The other part of it is that this is a demand that, in, in similar ways that we've seen in the United States, it's a demand that comes from police unions in France to try to put pressure on, on the government to take action to, in their, in their estimation, to protect uh, you know, their images from, from being distributed. So what's changed this time is that the police unions have been making this demand, but evidently the government has felt compelled to, to go along with them. I think that has to do with the political context. 
like I said, the rise of, of the right wing in France. And then if you look at the, the broader backdrop, of course, of, of the recent terror attacks, that sort of colors uh, things as well here in France. I think all of that's playing into, in, into the actions that, that, that we've seen. Right. And, and I'm guessing that, you know, a similar dynamic could emerge here in the United States uh, just as rapidly. You know, we don't have a parliamentary system, multiple parties, but it wouldn't surprise me if Trump spins off something like uh, Teddy Roosevelt did, you know, a, a new bull moose party for a for a try at uh, re-election like Teddy did in 2012, in, 10, in 1912. And the question is, how far would that get? Is France at risk of becoming a police state? I mean, if the police are above the law and they cannot be held accountable by citizens, uh, how is that anything other than a police state? That's a good point you bring up, because we hear this debate, you know, that's been provoked by this proposed legislation. I should say it's been passed already by the National Assembly. It's only to be approved by the Senate, although the government has since backtracked from the most controversial measure, which we're going to get to that in a second. But the security bill that this is part of includes expanding, you know, the ability to use drones. It would increase the ability for armed police to enter into public spaces in which they otherwise in which until this point they have not had the, the, the right to, to intrude into, to go into. It's a bill that's very alarming for not just that measure that you mentioned about criminalizing the ability to film police. It's a bill that really attacks civil liberties in general. And, and the point you raise is an interesting one, because there's one sort of part of the debate we've seen in France where people will say, oh, well, this is very dangerous, because if uh, this bill goes through, it means that if Marine Le Pen, the far-right candidate, would ever come to power, uh, in the next presidential election in 2022, she's going to have all these tools at her disposal. And that's, you know, I think an argument that has some merit to it. But on the other hand, you know, this is happening right now. <laughs> this is something that's being approved mm-hmm. right now by Emmanuel Macron, this, you know, president who's portrayed himself as sort of a, a poster boy for liberal internationalism, who has this very sensitive to his international image. But it's happening right now. There's an attack on civil liberties going on in France right now. It's not hypothetical. We're seeing it. So I think that's, that's something to keep in mind, sort of to, to your point. But um, maybe to, to, to backtrack a little bit, as I mentioned, the, the most controversial measure, which you mentioned, is known as Article 24, this proposal to ban, um, to, to make illegal the sharing of images of police officers that are identifiable with the intent of harming the officers. Uh, the government, uh, in the face of this big protest movement that we've seen over the weekend, and now says that they're going to rewrite that portion of the text. It's not... Everything that protests, protests have been asking for, everyone, people want the whole bill to be passed out, but it does mark a concession from Macron's party. One of the things we're seeing here in the United States, Cole, is the, we're talking with Cole Stangler, uh, that's his Twitter handle and his website as well, are all colestangler.com, et cetera, um, and, uh, who's a Paris-based reporter and uh, producer, writer and producer with France 24 Television. Um, one of the things that we're seeing here in the United States, uh, here in Oregon, there were, um, I don't know, eight or ten small towns. that were, This was reported in the Oregonian, our, our statewide newspaper, um, where uh, bef- this was like two months ago or thereabouts or a month ago, you know, when the, when, when the George Floyd protests were going on, where dozens and in one case hundreds of uh, local citizens who live in these small towns showed up on Main Street at four o'clock at the corner of, you know, Fifth and Main kind of thing with guns. I mean, you know, every, every single one of them heavily armed from AR-15s down to pistols to, to hunting rifles because they were told and they believed that Antifa and Black Lives Matter were sending busloads of black people into their town to smash windows and rape their wives. And it turned out that this was 
stuff that was being delivered to these people in emails and on Facebook. And it was and what ultimately they found it was coming out of either Russia or Ukraine. I mean, there are there are uh, trolls operating on behalf of and also, you know, we've seen this kind of propaganda, you know, coming out of Iran. We've seen it coming out of Saudi Arabia. We've seen it coming out of China. Um, It seems like, you know, the majority of it's coming out of Russia, but who knows? But to what extent do you think that these uh, that this hard right anti-democratic small d uh, movement in France is uh, responding to essentially outside agitators, or has France not even done the deep dive on that? You know, Zuckerberg seems to be, you know, just fine with uh, Trump going full authoritarian. Why wouldn't he be with Macron? What's bringing mm. this about? I mean, you know, I, I think there's a lot of factors that explain the, the rise of the far right in France. Uh, it's a process that's been taking place for decades, really, and, and they, the national rally, renamed National Rally Party, had a lot of success under Francois Hollande, the socialist party president uh, who preceded Macron, I think in large part the national rally gained support because of Hollande's uh, very poor presidency. Uh, he finished as the most unpopular uh, modern French president, very single-digit approval ratings, showing an inability to really uh, contest, we've talked about this before, I think, uh, to really uh, challenge the austerity drive that we saw across Europe and in France, perhaps less so than when you think about Spain and Greece, but France had its own sort of mini version of austerity, restrained Public spending, um, and alone oversaw that as as the can as the as the uh, party of as someone representing the left, and that sort of mm. in a lot of ways uh, he I was think, ineffective. Um, and he was he was he was very ineffective. Alone, a very ineffective, <laughs> as you say, uh, uh, president. I think that I think that greatly benefited the national rally. When you think as well about his inability to really address. Uh, you know, the bigger problem of the deindustrialization, when you think about the north and the east in France, which are hubs for the national rally, the, current, the, the party does well. Was, uh, was he, uh, Cole, the forgive the interruption, we just have 10 seconds. Was Hollande blocked by the Mitch McConnell of France, or was he simply incompetent? I think a lot of decisions were of his own making. You know, if you look at the Obama years, had, had a full majority in, in the legislature, uh, had, a, had a presidency, had the opportunity to do things, and ultimately, you know, decided not to pursue them. Yeah, yeah I got it. Cole Stangler, colestangler.com, the website. Uh, you can t- tweet him at Cole Stangler. Cole, always great talking with you. Thanks so much for staying up late to talk with us today. Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, What is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.